Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 7. The word of God speaks to us. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it and, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. All right, go ahead and grab a seat. Good morning, uh, welcome, my name's Aaron Addison. I could serve as one of the pastors here at Frontline South. And um, just heads up, I have been fighting off a cold all week and getting over it and getting better and then lost my voice yesterday somewhat. So, uh, so if I sound like this, I don't normally sound like this. So just heads up, uh, by the end of the sermon, I might be signing to you. I don't know. We'll just see how things go. Um, so this was a big, big year for our family in the sense of we introduced our kids to the Jurassic Park series. Any other Jurassic Park fans out there? Anyone? Okay, great. Some of you might be judging me for that. That's fine. I welcome it. I receive it. That's great. Um, what's amazing about Jurassic Park is uh, now they have, what, six movies? It's the same movie every single time. Uh, it has the same story. It has everything, right? The same message, which is, hey, we can't play God uh, and expect things to just go smoothly. And, uh, and it's the same exact story, but they throw twists every time, right? So it's like, hey, let's do the same thing, but this time we're going to unleash a T-Rex on San Diego, right? So it's like, okay, this is wild. Let's do this. And, uh, and really, what's amazing is they continue to make these movies, right? And we really live in a world where, like, right now, at least in entertainment, we love reboots, right? We love sequels. We love to see the story continue going on and on, the nostalgia of it all. And really, if you just went to any movie theater, I think at least half of the movies are sequels, prequels, requels, reboots, whatever, uh, to continue on that uh, story. Now, why 
am I bringing this up at all? Or talking about dinosaurs in Genesis, uh, who would do that? Um, here's why. Is that we've reached a point in Genesis where the book is going to actually do something similar to reboot. It's going to retell the story, but with different characters and different circumstances. And in fact, scripture does this a lot. There's actually a big theological term for our, all you nerds out there called recapitulation. And the idea is this, a story gets told over and over again in scripture with new characters. And each time this happens, we learn something new. There's, there's a reason for it. There's something that it's kind of drawing to our mind, a new twist, a deeper understanding of the original story and how it plays into the current story. And just like with reboots today, uh, there's a lot of Easter eggs in scripture, right? If you don't know what that is, uh, what that means is there's little hints that draw back your mind to the beginning things, right? So it's like, hey, remember how that happened in movie one? Well, it's happening in movie 27 as well, uh, just to give you a little hint. Um, and scripture does the same thing where it kind of gives us these reminders that we have to read a passage, not just in its own light, but in light of some other story. Now, the story of Noah, what's fascinating is this is a story that's really familiar to us in some ways. We grow up, uh, even me, I didn't really grow up in church. I knew about the story of Noah. It's something that we kind of grew up knowing, but there's a lot of things that we don't really get about this story. Uh, a, a lot of ways that our idea of the story of Noah is more shaped by children's stories than really by what the Bible teaches. And there's a lot of stuff as we read through it that we're like, wait, what? What's going on here? Uh, like, how, how does this work? And in the Noah story, one thing that we're going to see uh, as we try to kind of really even recover what this story means for us and how it's supposed to teach us, one of the things we're going to see is this story is actually retelling another story. It's actually retelling the stories we read about in Genesis 1 through 3, the creation narrative. Now, here's what I mean. Let me, let me unpack it for you. Last week, Chad he walked us through the flood, right, where God poured out judgment on creation. And at the same time that he pours out this judgment, he graciously saves a man and his family, Noah. But here's the question that I always think about. And this, this whole passage has lots of questions that it provokes in our mind. And that's a good thing. But here's a question. Why does it have to be a flood? Like, why couldn't God have just, you know, made a huge volcano kill everyone or sent a meteor to hit the earth or opened up the ground and swallow them? Or even like God can just speak a word and create everything. Couldn't he have just spoken a word and gotten rid of all mankind? Well, the reason is that the flood was not just about killing people. Actually, it was sending a message. It was showing something. And what it was showing was that creation itself was becoming undone. And here's what I mean. Genesis 1, we see the world and the world is described as covered with water and without form and void of life. And then we get to the height of the flood narrative and here, uh, you know, height of the flood, and the earth is once again described as reverting back to that same thing, covered in water. 
uh, without life in this pre-creative state. So we see kind of God working his way backwards. So the living creatures that God brought into existence on days five and six, like those are no longer there. The order and rhythm of creation that God established on day four uh, with summer and winter in the hot and cold, sea time and harvest, all those rhythms are thrown off because of the flood. The dry land and plants that appeared out of the water on day three are once again covered. Again, the whole point is it's trying to draw you back and go, hey, listen, the earth is now going back to Genesis 1-1. Now it's back in that same state of where it was before. And we can even see clues of this uh, in the in the text where uh, look at Genesis 1-2 where it says God describing the earth before creation, says the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now compare that to Genesis 8, where it says, God remembered Noah and made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. Now, uh, you may not know this, but in Hebrew, one of the most common things that like is important to kind of know is that the same Hebrew word is used for spirit and wind and breath. They're the same exact word, same exact concept. So what we have in both Genesis 1 and Genesis 8 is a world covered in water, and you have spirit or wind hovering and blowing over the face of the water. So it's supposed to draw us back and say, hey, this is actually the undoing of creation itself, And now God is bringing about a new creation. God's bringing about a new creation. So as the waters kind of recede, the new creation comes. So dry land appears, plants, animals repopulate the earth. Noah walks off the ark, and what we're supposed to think in our minds hearing this story is, this is a new Adam and a new creation. So like Adam, Noah gets off off the ark, and he's blessed by God. He's given a mandate to go and be fruitful and to multiply. He's provided with food. And God once again declares that man is the image of God. And in fact, towards the end of chapter 8, we get even more allusions to this, right? So Noah, what does he do? The very first thing he does when he gets off the ark is he makes sacrifices. Now, what is that going to bring to an Israelite's mind? The temple, which is what creation was. So again, it's like this new creation, like the old creation, is a temple for worshiping God. Uh, Even some of the language, there's wordplay where uh, it talks about these sacrifices being a pleasing aroma. And the word for pleasing in Hebrew has the same root that Noah has, which is to rest. Which is a big deal in the creation narrative, right? At the end, what do we have? God rests. So again, you kind of have this retelling of creation as the water subsides, as now this new temple is here, and now God is at rest. So you would think we get here and we go, it's done. God's done it, right? He's he's fixed what was broken. God's starting over. Just as long as Noah doesn't mess up like Adam did, everything's going to be fine. But we quickly learn that this new creation is not Eden. It is not the same. It is different. God never looks at this new creation and says, that's really good. Because there's one big difference between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. 
And that's Noah. That's Noah. God chose to save Noah. And in so doing, here's what happened. Everything inside Noah, the sin, the bent, the thing that stayed in him from Adam is continuing on into the new creation. So even after the flood in Genesis 8, 21, listen to what God says. We read it a minute ago. But God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man for, and here's why, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God said almost the exact same words a couple chapters ago. And the point is, guess what? The flood didn't change that. It didn't change the heart of man. Creation may be new, but man is the same. Noah and his family still carry the stain of sin into this new world. And so this is important for us to remember. Judgment, as important and crucial and good as judgment is, it doesn't have the power to change a person's heart. So what we're going to do is we're going to unpack this chapter. And in chapter 9, we're going to see two specific ways that sin still kind of affects us. And just a heads up, these first two are going to be really heavy. They're going to be really hard because they're going to be describing us as people and what we actually carry in our hearts. But then we're going to see something sandwiched between these two points, a glimpse of what has power to change us, and it's absolutely shocking. It's absolutely shocking. So let's dive in. So the first point, our call to rule gets twisted by sin. Our call to rule gets twisted by sin. So in the beginning, if you've been with us for a bit, you, you might remember this, uh, or you might have forgotten because it's been a while. But in the beginning, Adam was made in the image of God. And what we learned, what that meant was, is that people were the clearest picture of who God is and what God was like. And they were supposed to represent God on this earth. In two big ways they were supposed to do that is by ruling and by filling, by ruling and by filling. And in the same way, in this new creation, God sends out Noah into the world and he gives him the same commission. Uh, he sends him out to rule and to fill and uses some of the same language, but we see immediately almost that it's different, that there's something different brought into the equation now. So let's read it. Genesis 9, starting in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. Again, this is almost exactly what God said to Adam. But then notice the next thing, where it, to Adam God said, and have dominion. Here's what God says to Noah. The fear of you, and the dread of you, shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens. Upon everything that creeps on the ground, in all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So in Genesis 1, man is given dominion over the earth, but now God says our relationship with creation would be marked by fear and dread 
as we seek to kill and consume creatures for our own livelihood. I mean, it's kind of fascinating to think about it. From now on, from this point onward, one of the key sources of human nourishment could only come through violence and death. Dominion that we were given in the beginning has now become tyranny. The king has now become a dictator. And just like in the garden, again, little Easter egg, just like in the garden, there is a restriction placed on this source of food. We're not to eat the flesh with its blood. Now, this isn't talking about eating a rare steak. And as anyone who eats any sort of rare steak will constantly tell you, the red juice is not blood anyway. But that's not what this is talking about or trying to refer to. The point is really twofold. One is we shouldn't eat things that are still alive because that's gross. Um, And, uh, you know, we actually have to kill the creature to consume it. We have to kill it. And the second thing is even though We're given authority by God to kill and to eat. By pouring out its blood, we're recognizing this life doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And that's what we've taken something that belongs to him that he's given to us. So John Walton, he kind of in his commentary sums it up well, I think. He says, ritually speaking, the draining of blood before eating the meat was a way of returning the life force of the animal to God who gave it life. This offers recognition that they have taken the life with permission and are partaking of God's bounty as his guests. It function, its function is not unlike that of the blessing said before a meal in modern practice. Now, don't miss the point here. This passage is not trying to argue for vegetarianism any more than Genesis 3 is arguing for nudism. Um, the point is not about really our diet. That's not, w- that's not what God is most concerned about. The point is our relationship with creation has changed. It's changed. It's more about what it means for us now to rule over creation and the bent inside us as humans towards violence and death. And we can see this because God moves seamlessly from violence towards animals to violence against humans. And so he goes on in verse 5, it says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now, there's a lot that we could talk about here. Questions about sanctity of life, about capital punishment, what that means. We actually don't have time to really get into all of that. But there's something important I want you to grasp from this. That despite our sin, despite the fall of man... God still calls us his image. God still calls us his image. He still marks us out in this new creation as the image of God that displays his glory to creation. But he does it in a shocking way. I mean, this is the very first song or poem of new creation. And notice the difference between this and Genesis 1.27 where God is saying out loud in poetry, hey, 
I made them in my image, male and female, I made them, to now that same refrain goes, hey, bloodshed and murder and vengeance are going to happen. Like, do you see the shocking way that this is described? Like, somehow we've gone from a poem about the beauty of God's image to now a poem about murder. We've gone from Genesis 1 to Genesis 9. And here's the point. The calling that we've received to rule this creation has spiraled out of control. The very same sin that crouched at Cain's door is inside us still. So we try to manipulate. We try to force things into our own way. We might even become violent. Or maybe on the flip side, we abdicate all responsibility and wash our hands of what's wrong in the world. However we look at it, this beautiful calling that God gave us, the highest calling that you could maybe have in all of creation has now been twisted and marred by our sin. That instead of ruling under God's good authority, we now rule on our own terms. And if you've ever been around children, you know this to be true. You know this is in our hearts. There comes a point in parenting where you realize that what's going on is a war for who is in control. Right? It's like you realize this is, this is not about whatever they're screaming about. This is about who is in control. Because we want to have control. Like we want to rule things. But, and there's something good about ruling. But it's been twisted to where now we're going to force our way to it. We're going to grasp it. We're going to take it from other people. We're going to use any means necessary in order to control Now, instead of ruling for God and his glory, we seek our own kingdom. And so this call to rule, we see in the very beginning of this creation that God kind of acknowledges, hey, that's twisted and bent now. And the second thing we're going to see is our call to fill also gets twisted by sin. So not only our call to rule has been twisted, but Genesis 9 also points to our called to fill, to be fruitful, multiply, being twisted. So at the end of this chapter, there's a really strange story. Uh, a really weird story that if you were writing the Bible, you probably would leave out. Um, and so this is, we're going to skip over a bit. So this is chapter 9, starting in verse 20. This is one of the only other stories we have of Noah outside of the flood. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, which is one of his sons, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth, his brothers, took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. Now, this is a really weird story, uh, but I actually think it actually is something important 
for us and something important as we kind of explore this text. Um, now, even understanding what's going on here can be a bit complicated, and I'll, I'll kind of explain why. Is, is the problem that Ham saw his father naked accidentally? No, I don't think that's what's going on. Instead, the overall sense is that something sexual is happening here. And in fact, later on in Leviticus 18, we learn that uh, the phrase to uncover someone's nakedness is a euphemism for some sort of sexual interaction. And in particular, the phrase uncovering your father's nakedness implies some sort of incestuous thing with your mother. So all of this to say, it's kind of hard to know like, okay, what exactly is going on here? Because it's not very clear, but it seems like there's, in the smallest degree, there's some sort of lustful like kind of thoughts going on where we can even take it further to where maybe there's some sort of assault that happened here as well. Uh, but at any rate, the details actually don't matter that much. They don't matter that much. We can debate about it. It's fun. Uh, but the point is that our call to fill has been twisted now. That the brokenness, the sexual brokenness that we see in Ham towards his family has been twisted. That just like the flood told a creation story, this now tells a false story. So think about it this way. Where do we find Noah? He's in a garden, a vineyard, a garden. He eats of, he consumes fruit from the garden, which leads him to be naked and shamed. After whatever it is that Ham does, Noah awakes and knows, just like Adam's eyes were opened and he knows. Further, someone covers the nakedness of Noah Calling, recalling God covering Adam's nakedness. So just as the flood retold an act of new creation, once again we see in this story a new fall of humanity. But this time it's highlighting our bent in, in, in the call to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I mean, and think about it, the sexual brokenness that led to the flood in Genesis 6. If you remember the weird story in Genesis 6 as well, that kind of represented this sexual brokenness, it's still here. It's still here. Again, pointing to our hearts haven't changed. That sin, that stain is still there. Now, here's the point of both of these. Our our call to rule and call to fill has been twisted. And here's the point. This is not just a story about Noah. This is a story about you and me. This is a story about our own hearts. That the very beautiful things that God intended for us, the good things that God intended for us, we have now taken and twisted for our own purposes. That in the places where we were supposed to most image God, those are the places where we now find profound brokenness and pain. So this is a story about our own selves. We see, we see in Noah a mirror of ourselves in our own brokenness. 
But God does something absolutely shocking in the midst of this. In the midst of this story, what we would expect is for God to say, never mind, Noah, you're out of here. For God to start over, but instead he does something that blows our mind. So that leads to the third point. God makes a covenant with all creation. God makes a covenant with all creation. So sandwiched between these two reminders of sin, we read something different. This is like the big twist, right? And we read about God establishing a covenant. So let's read it. This is Genesis 9, starting in verse 8. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you. That never again shall, uh, never again shall all, sorry, I have a typo in my notes. Uh, That's why I should read this from the scripture. Never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now this is really important because the idea of covenant is first introduced here in this passage. And the word covenant is going to be used over 250 times throughout the Old Testament. And so for us, this is not a word we often use, but to an Israelite, this is something they would have been familiar with. So what is a covenant? Well, the best way I can describe it is covenant is a framework for relationship. It's a way of defining the intimacy and closeness that two parties have. So this is a way in scripture of defining a marriage relationship as covenant, as two parties coming. And it's not about what benefit one gets over the other and marking off a checklist of here's. It's about intimacy and faithfulness to one another. It's about defining a relationship of love towards one another. And this is used for all kinds of relationships in scripture. But here's the thing I want you to see. God comes, and really unprovoked, God comes and offers his faithfulness to broken people. To people that he knows is marked by anger and violence and sexual brokenness. God comes to those people, and without them doing anything, he says, Hey, I am offering you my faithfulness. I'm offering you my love. I'm I'm giving myself to you. And that's what God does with us. And it makes no sense, right? There's a lot of questions in this that scholars and different people come up with. Um, a A lot of answers that they provide. But a question that, as I studied this, kept ringing over and over again is like, God's like, I'm never gonna destroy the earth again. It's like, why? (laughs) Like, why? Like, God, you might want to keep that in your back pocket. You don't know, like, what's going to happen. And and the reason God gives doesn't even make sense. Like, he kind of gives a reason. He says, never again am I going to do this because man is evil and wicked in their hearts. And it's like, that's actually the reason to do it, not the reason not to do it. And when you think about it for long enough, you realize the only explanation 
is that our God is a good and gracious God. The only explanation is that God chose, for whatever reason, because he's so good and loving, chose to draw near to us instead of reject us. Instead of pushing us aside, instead of destroying us, he actually welcomes us in. And that's what makes this so shocking. We carry the same brokenness in our hearts, and God comes to us, and he binds himself to us. Like, this covenant's not just some promise out there. It is a binding. It is an offering of oneself. And God, unprovoked, does that to us. He displays in this not just his promises, which are good and great, but a desire for relationship. A desire for intimacy with us. And what's, again, even more shocking is this covenant that God makes is completely one-sided. Like, he doesn't come and say, all right, I'm not going to do this again as long as you do A, B, C, D. Uh, Or even, like, as long as you're just good enough. Like, God just throws us out of the equation and says, I am offering my faithfulness to you. It's completely one-sided. He gives himself to us without any conditions, without any demands. And this is what God has been doing, but he makes really explicit here. And then he gives us this sign of the covenant. So just like a married couple will exchange rings and as a sign of the covenant, of the binding between them, God gives us this sign in the rainbow. And so let's read this real quick in Genesis 9, starting in verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenants that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. Now here's something important I want you to see about this. Is that in Hebrew, the word for bow here is like a word for a bow, like a warrior's bow. This is describing a weapon, right? In our age, it might be like a handgun, okay? It's like it is a weapon to kill. And God is describing how he poured out his wrath on this world, on creation, undid it, and now God has stowed his weapon. He's put it away. He's hung up the bow of his wrath not to wipe out humanity again, not to pour out the fullness of it again. And now, what do we notice about the bow? We would expect God to have his handgun pointed down on earth, waiting for us to make a mistake, to pour out his wrath again, but instead it's pointed up. It's pointed up 
at the heavens. Instead of pointing it down at us, God will pour out his wrath again, fire off his bow again, but next time he'll unleash it on himself. In other words, here's what God's saying. I will stay faithful to you to death. To death. I will die. I will take on everything to pour out my faithfulness and love on you. That's what this bow symbolizes. That's what it shows us every time we see it in the sky is God's faithfulness, his love, his willingness to take on and suffer in our place to rescue us. That he didn't give up on us, but he actually moves forward to change us and transform us and renew us and renew this creation. Man's heart were, is unchanged. Noah's heart and his family were still broken and twisted. But God, through this, it's like, this is the way. This is how God is going to transform and renew creation. Is he's actually going to transform our hearts by covenant, by coming and being in relationship with us offering his faithfulness to us, and ultimately taking on the judgment we deserve. Taking it on in our place. And at the end of it all, and again, this is what I want you to see, is like, God, he knew what was going to happen on this side of the flood. He knew Noah. He knew the brokenness inside Noah and the brokenness inside of his family. Noah did a lot of great things, but the whole point is to try to show Noah wasn't perfect. Like he still carried that sin inside of him and that brokenness inside of him. And that is inside each one of us. And nevertheless, God loved. God pursued. God made a covenant and bound himself to broken, twisted people like you and me. And that's why we can say, hey, actually this story of the flood, more than it highlights the judgment of God, which again is good and important and beautiful, more than that, it highlights his grace. And that's not just something we say to feel good. That is true. Like This story is about God's overwhelming grace to broken, sinful people. He could have just left us to destruction, but instead he welcomed us in. Instead, he set his face to rescue us. And so, for no reason other than God's love and grace, he points the bow at himself, takes on the curse, takes on the judgment, takes on the wrath, and order to save us.